Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, got a good one for you today. I am talking to Dr. Ryan Engler, who recently published some research in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association on communication challenges between veterinarians and breeders. I don't want to tell you too much about it. It is really fascinating um, what breeders think about vets, what vets think about breeders, what vets think breeders think about them, and what breeders think vets think about them. There's a lot of assumptions being made, and it makes our relationship working together a bit challenging. And so this is meaningful research. This is useful research. This is research that you can use to run a better practice, take better care of pets, build stronger client relationships with uh, with breeders, and ultimately just enjoy what we do a bit more. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Ryan Engler. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me today. You're joining us from uh, the University of Arizona's College of Veterinary Medicine. And I, uh, I reached out to you when I saw your article recently in, uh, in JAVMA. And it is called the uh, Survey of Communication Challenges that Impact Relationships Between Veterinarians and Dog or Cat Breeders and Proposed Solutions for Retaining Breeders as Clients. And I thought, this is research that matters. Like, this is (laughs) actual research that I need in my life. Okay, so you have research that you put out, um, and it was published in February, about relationship hurdles between breeders and veterinarians, uh, the benefits of overcoming those hurdles, and some practical tips about how we might move past them. Where did your idea for this research come from? Like what motive? I know what would motivate me. What motivated you (laughs) to be like, you know what, let's look into this? That's a great question. Um, So my background is in companion animal practice. Um, I graduated in 2008 from Cornell. Um, and so I practiced full time until 2014. And then when I was at Midwestern University, I taught in their teaching hospital for three years. Uh, and then since then, I, I've been strictly in, in preclinical curriculum. Uh, but uh, communication is what I teach and communication is my research area of interest. And so it started as just looking into companion animal uh, communication. What do clients want from us? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jane Shaw did awesome research at CSU. Uh, And she, in fact, was who trained me to build my communication curriculum, um, both at Midwestern and here at the U of A. And and we use Calgary Cambridge communication skills. Um, And and those are great skills, you know, like nonverbal cues and open ended questions. And I looked at um, in my early research what in general cat owners and dog owners want. Um, However, I got to thinking that's a hugely broad generalization. Right. If we think about practice. And so what my thought there was, what about different groups of owners and and what could I draw from in my actual practice experience? And what I always found was you had those uh, appointments with breeders that at least for me never seemed to go well. They never seemed to go the way I wanted. Uh, There always seemed uh, to be some glitch and I could never Mm -hmm. really figure it out, but I was like, I'm not really talking with them. I'm talking at them sometimes uh, or sometimes 
uh, my technical team would say, there's a breeder in the room as your next <laughs> yeah. client. Oh, and yeah. then you get this little like thought and you're like, uh, what's that going to mean? Like, and I don't know, I just felt this weird thought, right. And no one talks about it in vet school. Um, I never learned anything uh, positive about working with breeders in vet schools. It was either nothing, you know, silence or um, something bad. Right. And so yeah. I just thought, what, what are my biases and assumptions about that? And where do they come from? So I started digging into it and right. All I could find is anecdotal information, right? You ask your colleagues, how do you feel about breeders? And you get all these stories, but they just come from stories. Uh, no one was researching. What are the needs? And I thought, uh, I'm all about in my research, what can we do to bridge those communication gaps? And so if we could figure out what do breeders want and need from us and what do we want and need from breeders? And if there's alignment, then maybe we could actually make a difference and, and not have that gut knee jerk feeling. Sure. A much more functional, pragmatic relationship. I, th- I think that that's, I think that makes a lot of sense of just understanding the the desires of all parties and going, okay, how do we how do we make this relationship into something that is really useful for both of us? Because, you know, when, when we see value, we are, uh, we're much more likely to make things actually work. Okay. Well, so talk about this. So let's, let's get started. You talked to, uh, cat breeders and dog breeders and veterinarians. How did you set the study up? Um, this was a study that I conducted when I was at, uh, Kansas state university. Um, and it was a study where we had online surveys, three different surveys, that uh, debuted December 2018 um, through March 15th. So a three-month study, um, there was a survey link. um, And basically, my research team and I uh, got approval, uh, IRB approval, and we were able to put that on our social media accounts. We were able to disseminate the survey, and I also reached out to um, breed organizations. So Cat Fanciers Organization, Cat Fanciers Association, CFA, uh, TICA, um, and the American Kennel Club. And I did get some help um, from members within uh, to help disseminate those surveys. What did you find of interest? So, what did the what did the breeders say about the vets? What did that say about the breeders? What were the what were the points of conflict? And then also, what were the points of commonality? Uh, that's a great question. So, the amazing part is I ended up with nine thousand nine hundred pages of data, <laughs> which Christ. is astronomical. Um, the level of, of how many quotes I found and what's in the database blew me away. I guess that was the most stunning thing. Um, I remember sitting at, at Kansas State in my office then and papers just were all over the floor. And I thought, I don't know how to, to thematically code 9,900 yeah. pages with no grad assistance. Not, you know, it was just me and a highlighter and my team and <laughs> trying to figure out. So it was a long process. Um, and uh, I think the biggest thing for me was really, it was the most meaningful study I've ever done because I learned so much about myself. And when I would read responses from the breeders, what my gut reaction was, right? And I think a lot of times in practice, we spend time shoving that down and just pushing it away. Uh And then I had to process that, right? And I had to say, you know what? That was really harsh. That was really, you know, hard to read. But is there truth to it? And I think that's the interesting part. Um, 99.9% of the survey responses from cat and dog breeders actually could see where they were coming from, right? I could say, you know what? I have thought that. I have said that. I've done that. And wow, I didn't realize that that had such an impact, right? Yeah. Separating the the feedback from the way that it's delivered is is a challenge, I think, 
for all of us. And I imagine that, yeah, you, you maybe had to parse, parse that apart of what, what is emotion here or what is frustration or what is past experience versus this is a valid point that they're actually making. Absolutely. And so um, it, it was eye opening and, and we had a, a large amount of data. So we had 793 dog breeders. Um, okay. We had 540 cat breeders and 514 veterinarians, uh, which was huge for me. I didn't know what numbers, but in vet med, those numbers were pretty good. Yeah, those are those are those are good numbers. It is hard to get that that level of response. Absolutely. So that was that. And, and when I looked at dog breeders and cat breeders, um, dog breeders essentially had five themes come out. Cat breeders had four. Um, but there was significant overlap in what those themes were. And um, the two big things that stood out to me um, were that it's with dog breeders and cat breeders. One of their biggest frustrations is that they felt veterinarians did not take time to acknowledge their knowledge and their experience. So that was a yeah. one big point. And the other was the assumption making um, that they felt and they gave many examples that we can get into, but they felt that assumptions were made the minute they walked into the door or scheduled the appointment and they could not break beyond that barrier, uh, whether that assumption was true or not. That's fascinating. Okay. Let's, um, well, let's start, let's start, do, let's start to unpack that a little bit. So I, I, when you say that, I go, Oh yeah, I can totally see that. That's not, that's not a big uh, imaginative stretch for me. So so how did, how did that present thematically? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they said it a, a, a variety of different ways, but like, yeah, unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, so I would say that the biggest area um, for, for lack of knowledge, at least in their perception, perception of us, um, is our lack of understanding of basic theriogenology. And so a number of them made comments about uh, how many litters have you actually seen born naturally? Um, how many whelpings have you participated in? How many neonates have you actually seen with your own eyes or handled or done exams on uh, as compared to their experiences? Um, and so we're talking beyond just C-sections, um, but now just thinking about basic birth processes. Um, and, and many gave their actual numbers and because they have charts and data and could tell me I've birthed 1,826 litters with my collective group of 25 breeders yeah. and you've seen zero. So when you try to tell me what to do with my one day old kitten, where is that coming from? Because I know more about that than you do. I, so let me just say that hearing this, I fully understand the struggle that you explained earlier of sitting, <laughs> sitting in your office and trying to go, okay, there's, there, I can see the point here and I'm not going to take this personally or in a antagonistic way. I, I, I feel that in my chest uh, as, you, as you say that. And, and there is truth to it, but yeah, that is, that is hard to hear, but it's good to, it's good to get candid, candid feedback. Okay. I get that. And that, yeah. So if you picture that times 9,900 pages, <laughs> there was a lot of tightness and a lot of, oh my gosh. And I mean, I loved my vet school education, but sure. yeah, like we learned about dystocia in cattle, but we never, ever talked about birthing kittens, birthing puppies. We talked about C-sections relative to certain breeds and, and certain people feeling certain breeds should not be in existence, right? Um, during yep. the C-section. Um, but yeah, it was, a lot, it was a lot to take in. Another quote, and it, it's in the article, I don't have it right in front of me, but one, one of the quotes that stood out most to me that made a lot of sense 
was a breeder about cats, uh, said that you only get you, the veterinarian, only get to know me. This is paraphrased for for you know, like all of 10 minutes in one snippet of time with my cat. I've lived with my cat my entire life. So it's kind of like going to a hairdresser, right? The hairdresser sees you for one minute and could say, oh, maybe this style will work for you. But I live with my hair each day, every day I wake up to it. I can tell you what works, what doesn't work. And you need to hear my perspective because I know what's normal and not normal. And if I'm telling you there's something not normal, don't just give me a haircut because you think that's going to work. Ask me what I need, right? Ask me. And it was said much more eloquently and actually so much so I cut it out and I put it on my door to my office that every morning I would read it and be like, I need to remember other people's perspectives. Yeah, that's great. That That's really good. I mean, that's just a good, it's just a good analogy. And it, it's very true. I, th- I think, I think it's absolutely true with dogs. It seems even more true with, with cats, you know, because their behaviors are so different when they come into the vet clinic as opposed to how they are at home. Yeah. So that was really eye-opening. That was about the knowledge and experience. Um, the assumptions part um, was also, I think that was the hardest part to listen to. But the assumptions that repeated themselves were that breeders perceive that we veterinarians think that they are cheap, that they're ignorant, uh, for the cat people, that they're just crazy cat ladies. And that term repeated itself again and again, that we also disapprove of breeding we as veterinarians. And so this was interesting. Again, I hadn't thought about it, but breeders said one of the most disheartening things is when they come into a practice and the whole waiting room is decked out with adopt, don't shop posters, right? And and lots of commentary that suggests that shelter pets or rescue pets are the way to go. And the breeders said, you know, when I come into a waiting room and I see that, or I'm in an exam room and that's what the walls are surrounded by in posters, I don't have a place with you. You've actually completely excluded me from the experience. And now I feel like I'm not welcome. I feel like I'm not wanted. And I actually feel like I'm doing something wrong because I'm not subscribing to that, that popular press phraseology. And, and that's something yeah. I never thought of, right? No, I agree. Now that you're saying that, I'm, I'm sort of empathizing with what that experience would be like. And we go, oh, yeah. I mean, wh- one of my big things about practice and just working with pet owners is, is trust is, a, is an absolute cornerstone for me. You know, it, like we are in a trust, trust and relationship business. I, I need pet owners to trust me and I need to earn their trust. And then if I get their trust, I can get their compliance. You know, they'll, they'll come along. And I think about, about this scenario and I go, there's no way I'm reaching this person. You know, th- there's just, I've, 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 the environment here has set me up to fail and I've helped create that environment and just, yeah, this is a lot to process. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think of all the practices I've been at, how many posters, how many flyers, all the little bulletin boards that, you know, I thought the intent behind them is to help people find pets, right? Foster this dog, adopt this. Mm-hmm. I've been at practices where we offer shelter discounts, right? You know, a free vet visit if they adopt from a shelter. And I never thought about the impact on the other individuals. And and, yeah. and that's hard. Um or, or members of the veterinary team saying to breeders, even though they know that they are breeders and that's how they make their living, saying, so when are you going to neuter this dog? When are you going to neuter this cat? Isn't it about time? Aren't there too many sphinx in the world? You know, aren't there too many bulldogs? 
um, or making fun of intact patients, right? And so one of the quotes was about dogs and, and the breeder said um, they were tired of going into the clinic and saying, oh, your boxer is a walking tumor. Or uh, one of the cat breeders said that during the exam, uh, the veterinarian palpated the cat's testicles uh, and said, oh, these need to come off. And so it's like these oh, little wow. innuendos yeah. and comments. They reminded me similar. Uh, I know it's a stretch, but when Jason Coe studied obesity and does a lot of communication work surrounding that and the humor that people try to embed uh, as veterinarians trying to break through the wall of having a weight management conversation. And so it's almost the same thing. We're trying to hint at, say, hey, come on now, we need to neuter this pet. Yeah. And we're making comments that then stick in their mind and they go home with that. Do you feel like, um, and I'm I, I just curious if this is something that veterans have always felt, but do you feel like some of the, um, the bedrock rules that we were taught as veterinarians coming, coming up in training have kind of broken away into a more nuanced place? So I, I look at this as far as, you know, adopt, don't shop. Like we, we neuter every pet. And we, and we neuter at six months of age, you know, and, and like there used to be these guidelines where you say, this is what we all agree on. And this is what we, and we all say, and I think it's very comforting as a vet student who wants to have the right answer. You're like, okay, this is it. <laughs> they all get neutered. They get neutered at this age. And this is what we do. And this is the vaccines that they get and give me that certainty and give me that plan. And I am going to say it. And I don't know if it's just that, um, that our understanding of the differences in pets continues to grow and develop. I think a lot of that's probably driven by uh, the access to information that pet owners have now that they didn't used to have. You know, if you wanted to know anything about whelping puppies in the past, you either had to know someone who had had that experience or, and had just built up experience, or you had to go to the library and, uh, you know, and read about it. But those were the only options. Do you have that sense that, that, that these things are changing or do you feel like it's always been that way? No, I agree. I think it is changing more to what I would call pet specific care, individualizing care for that specific pet. Um, I, I don't feel like I graduated a long time ago. 2008 seems like a blink of an eye, but now I'm a dinosaur, I guess, <laughs> with that. Um, I'm with, I graduated in 2008 as well. I mean, you and me there right there go. together. Exactly. Um, and I would say that, and I don't know if it's where I graduated from, but I would say the mentality was very much prescriptive. Uh, this is what we do. Um, and, and it's uh, coined the, the term that I've read, and I apologize, I don't remember where I've read it from, but sage on the stage is what kind of yeah. our role was, right? It was, we get the prescription, we tell the prescription, there's a cut and dry black and white uh, area to it. Uh, and then our client just listens and does. And then we get mad when they don't do what we say, and we're moving towards guide on the side um, approach. And that means that, yes, as you say, our clients have access to more information. Uh, they can talk to people, they go on social media, they make posts, they have huge networks, um, they can write people around the world, um, and in an instant have answers. And so they come to us with more information, more questions. We know more as scientists. So the breed specific changes and the hemogram, for example, um, you know, we can start tailoring treatment on what we know to different breeds. And so, yes, I do see it as evolving. I think what's been slower about vet medicine as a whole, and, and that goes back to education, but it's changing in a good way. 
uh, is communication emphasis. And so when I went to school, there was zero communication training. And I think part of that was, again, we were sage on the stage. We were, we're the expert. No one else is the expert. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell them what you think, what you know, and they're going to do it. And if they don't do it, they're wrong and, and kind of end of day. And now as we move to the guide on the side approach, we're finding those veterinarians don't all have those communication tools because they don't know how to handle someone perhaps who questions their knowledge or asks a question. And what we're teaching now, which is very unique, and what I really love about our professional skills curriculum at the U of A, is there's an entire class, not just tacked on to clinical skills as, a, as an aside, but a whole class that's worth more point value than the clinical skills class, where we actually sit down. And so our first year students are actually working with simulated clients. I know other programs do that too, but we're asking them to think about what are their assumptions? What are their biases going into the room? How did that impact and influence client conversations? And we have those talks and clients will say, well, the simulated client said, why should I give my dog heartworm? Right? And the client says, they didn't like me. I can't believe they told me that they don't want to go on heartworm preventative. And it's like, let's talk about that. Why did they question you? Are they really questioning you? Are they asking a question because they want to know the answer? And how do we have that dialogue? Because it's not any more prescriptive and you will do X, Y, and Z. It's we need to ask, what is your pet need? What is your most prioritized concern? And how do we make that work together? Switching over to the sort of consultative model as opposed to the sage on the stage educator model is hard. I mean, it's just, I think, I don't know how to prove this, but it just seems obviously, objectively, much harder to... um, to work with someone where they are and listen and, and have this sort of a discussion format, as opposed to saying, here's the right answer and I'm going to give it to you. I, I think I think the former is obviously more effective. The latter is easier to do and it's easier to train. How much effect can we have on veterinarians with you know, training on things like this versus recruiting, uh, you know, how much of this do we, is training and how much of this is the admission process and, and, and focusing on people who naturally have those skill sets? Great question. And I would say that um, we're very fortunate to be in a time where research is expanding and evolving faster than we can pump it out. Um, there's an entire science now to communication. Um, it started in human healthcare. To their credit, they they were way ad- far in advance to us, but um, they paved the way, and we have followed up. And, and individuals like Cindy Adams and Jane Shaw and Jason Coe um, and Suzanne Kurtz um, really have pushed us into understanding that communication is not just an add-on, it's not just soft and fluffy, it's not just a nice-to-have skill. That it really is teachable and trainable, um, and that is both for students in vet med, but also for graduates. And so um, there's immense evidence base to, to looking at individual communication skills and showing that it can be taught. Um, and there's great uh, flexibility and freedom to pick what skills you find most natural. And so um, for me, I think about giving students a communication toolbox, right? And that means that maybe for you, your best tool is a hammer. And mine might be a screwdriver and we might have different defaults that we go to. So Mm -hmm. I always tell my students, I don't want 110 mini me's. I don't want 110 cookie cutters. We got to find what skills feel natural to you and authentic. And those are your strengths. And so it's a very strengths based approach. And so for someone who just 
doesn't feel like they can tap into empathy, we don't make them fake empathy. That, that kind yeah. of comes off really not so great, right? And so we might lean a lot more on reflective listening. So we find what buddy skills or partnering skills can help. You can achieve similar effects. And so I do think yeah. that we can definitely work on that. Now, that doesn't mean we're the bad guys. Um, it means that you know, there are difficult conversations, challenging clients. But I think we can do ourselves a favor by trying to create partnerships with the hope that we may not always align with our clients. We don't have to agree with everything that they want. But if we can find common ground, it may lead to less stress, less that frustration that we feel at the end of those really long days, right? When we're like, nothing worked today. I'm not, you know, day after day, it, it's hard. I get it. I've been there. You know, I, I, I'm an educator, yes, but I practiced 20 hour days. I practiced overnights. I, I was there. I lived it, breathed it. I remember it. Um, and I think we can help ourselves be more resilient by learning how to communicate better, which will prevent us hopefully from making little side comments and all the little snarky things that we might say and then forget that when we leave, those things are what clients remember. Now, I, I think that's a great point. I think a lot of the little sort of attempts at humor are things that we do and they come from a good place and we're just not really exactly sure how to open up that conversation. And so we, we do the classic thing where you say, you say the thing. And then if a person gets upset, you say, well, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. And you, no, you, no, you weren't kidding. <laughs> you know, but you were just, this was your safe way of bringing it up. So that if they got mad, you could say you were kidding and dismiss them as being overly sensitive. And so I, I, uh, that's, that's not the voice of experience at all. Uh, <laughs> never, never done that. Yeah, that was me with latenesses, right? And I fully admit that. And I, I'm the educator that tells the students all the bad things that I did. I'm not perfect. I'm human. But every time patients came in late, that was my like pet peeve, right? And I never wanted to be courageous and just say, hey, you were late. Instead, you know, you go in the room and I remember being the person that would be like, oh, hey, Fluffy didn't want to get dressed today to come on for the visit. Or, you know, like making little things. And I knew why I was saying it, um, but yeah. there was impact there. My intent was to let the client know, hey, we can't be tardy because this pushed us back. But the impact of, of kind of going around the mulberry bush didn't help. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think that's a great example. I think we've all got, we all have our things that we have, we have used humor as a little barb, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I... I'm still processing and wrestling with sort of the statements at the beginning of, you know, how many neonates have you examined compared to me? And I find that's a really hard, I can just start speaking for myself. That's a hard point for me to argue is to say, you know, it's fairly limited that I tend to see these, these patients. I'm generally not there. And so I guess the, the question I start to, to put forward is, okay, if I accept that feedback, what do I do with it? And I'm curious if you have, thoughts on that so if if there is truth so just to just to clarify the the criticism that that sort of came out in in your paper as well uh there's questions about how much theriogenology training veterinarians have and then also just the amount of experience with a certain life stage and things like that do you see the answer being advanced training uh or do you see the answer being own the reality of where we're at and in and figure and, and work collaboratively. And if so, what, is, what does that look like? Yeah, I love that question. So I would say um, 
I do not feel we need to be prescriptive and everyone needs to suddenly have a rotation in theriogenology and we all need to be brilliant reproductive specialists. I have immense mm-hmm. regard for our theriogenologists in our field. Um, they are amazing people and I could learn a ton from them. Um, I don't want to be a theriogenologist and I think that's okay. And I think a lot of my colleagues in companion animal medicine don't particularly have that interest, um, right? And in human healthcare, it's kind of like, why some people are pediatricians, but not OBGYNs, um, right? And I think that it's okay to be okay with what our strengths are. And I think, I think then that means we need to own it. And I think it means we need to acknowledge that there are new content areas for us. Um, and then we have to figure out what do we want to do with that, right? And so for some people, they may say, wow, I feel really stressed out. I don't want to admit I don't know X, Y, and Z. Maybe I do want to take that VIN class or I want to go to, uh, you know, some kind of continuing education. For many of us, it might mean, wow, I don't know those answers, but maybe I should see who in my community does, right? So that way, if I have a breeder who calls me or comes in to see me, I all of a sudden have that list, you know, kind of like we have the lists of emergency clinics in the area, the surgeons we call, uh, you know, the, the ophthalmologists, we all have those lists, but I don't really know who to call when I have a breeder with a question, right? And so then we, we try to kind of circumvent things or make up answers or get into trouble. I think we can help ourselves find the experts, figure it out, uh, maybe even go on a search in your, in your area, find out who you can talk to. And then the other thing is collaboration. I, w- I would underline and star that. We need to lean on our owners for certain things. And I'm not saying that they should dictate every ounce of care, right? We've been in those situations. That's not good either. At the same time, there needs to be a little bit of flex room. So just like when I'm prescribing eye medicine and I I should ask my client, hey, what's your schedule like? Before I ask them to give drops six times a day, right? And they say, "Ah, I can only do this. So I give them ointment because I don't need as many doses, right? Dose frequency. I think we could lean on breeders. What has your experience been? Tell me about your experience. Tell me, have you been in this situation before? What helped? What didn't help? You know, and kind of get that door open. It doesn't mean yeah. they may be right. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but, but maybe they've actually seen this exact instance and did something or knew someone that helped. And if we're in an emergency, maybe, and there's no time, we might need to use them a bit as an expert, right? And that's something that we don't like to do always as vets. It feels safer to be the sage on the stage, but our clients are experts in many ways. Um, And I would say that I know this much reproductive medicine, zero, um, actually probably 1.2% or something, but I'm gonna need their expertise because no, I've never seen a litter of kittens born ever. So I don't know what's normal other than if I go on a Google search, right? Which we vets do. <laughs> we yell at clients yeah. for Googling, but I Google. Oh, yeah. So I guess that's what I would say. Try to, and it's hard. I feel that in my chest sometimes too, but our clients are experts too, just in different ways. I agree with that. Were there criticisms, and I don't, I don't want to roll around in our biases here mm-hmm. at all, but were there criticisms of breeders that veterinarians had? I guess what I w- would say is common frustrations that have some validity or might have validity. 
you mean from from the opposite side of the coin? So from veterinarians, yes. I guess. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. I think if someone's listening to this and they're a vet student, they're like, "Why don't veterinarians? Why? Why do? What's the other side of this? Or, or what? Why do we get these reactions?" Yeah, absolutely. So, so the number one thing, um, and it was just under fifty percent uh, in terms of the theme. There were four themes in the paper, but the one that that probably you and I could predict without having read the article, you know, if it weren't built into the article is that there's this attitude, right? And so veterinarians were very focused on what attitude presented them when they opened the door in the consultation room. And, and that's a real thing. And I've experienced, it sounds like you have too, and it's the attitude that I know everything, right? And so veterinarians in the survey reacted to the apparent omniscience from breeders. And so what makes it hard for veterinarians to see breeders as experts is when it's shoved in their face, right? And so when we Mm -hmm. go in and try to have a conversation and the breeder all of a sudden starts saying, I know X, Y, and Z, and I know this person, and do you know that person? And let me tell you how much I know. And it's like a power struggle, right? Because then I feel like, well, I got to one-up that person because I know this person at CSU. And then the breeder says, well, I know that. Um, and so it's the attitude of omniscience, um, the ego, um, the feeling like they don't want to listen, the feeling like breeders come in and prescribe what they want. Like, you're going to give me this drug for 20 pets and you're going to give it to me now. My wife used to study uh, lizards. So she would look at these. Oh, they were geckos. And then she would, she would study these, these geckos. And, uh, and, she, and as a result, we ended up working a lot with different lizards and things like that. And, and uh, the 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 posturing that some of these lizard species would <laughs> yeah. do when they would like, they would see another male and then they, they would flare out their throat flap. It was called a dewlap. They would flare their dewlap and then they would do push-ups. Yes. And I just imagine veterinarians and breeders just doing push-ups at each other in the room. It very much is like, I, and I've been there. Like, I've felt this. I, it sounds ridiculous from the outside, but you walk in and there's this immediate feeling of posturing. Like you think, you think you know what you're doing. And like, I'm the brain in this room and, and you and I just need you to sign the scripts. I have felt that way from breeders. When you walk in, they're like, I don't have time for you. I'm going to tell you what I need. I need you to write the script. And of course, I react negatively to that because I'm very much a don't tell me what to do type person. And um, But I am sure that I have also been tainted by that and have walked into other rooms with this idea of don't come in here and tell me what to do. And, and it's just easy to, to and that is this, that's the toxic cycle, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, that's, we, we. We ha- because we do have these experiences and the breeder, the truth is the breeder came from another veterinarian where she had that experience and now she's coming in and bringing that baggage, which then gets me to react to her in the way that she's behaving. And we're back into the death spiral again. So yeah, that, that, that makes a, that makes a ton of sense. And then I was going to say, sorry, um, adding to that, it, 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 it then spirals into our relationships with clients who purchase from those breeders, right? Because then we read the paperwork sometimes that comes with the the pet and then we make comments to the client right and then the client feels they're caught between because maybe they really like the breeder and 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 to be honest before this study how many times did i actually ask the client for permission to call the breeder or talk to the breeder to clarify what was in there zero right we don't have time most of the time oh yeah and yet maybe if i actually picked up the phone we could find common ground oh yeah so the, the contract the contract is, def- is definitely a thing, isn't it? The pet owner comes in and they have a contract and they're like, this is what I agreed to with the breeder. And the breeder has, let, let's let's empathize for a second. You know, they're trying to do 
they're trying to protect these dogs and generally do what's best for the animals. Generally, I think we can, we can agree with that. But then you see these contracts and it's things like you will only feed this dog food and this is the vaccine schedule that we use. And that's I get that's a breeder overstepping their their training. And what they would say is, I have read so much on this. This is what I believe. Um, I understand. I have been bothered by that before when the when the pet owner comes in and says, these are some wild medical recommendations that I'm contractually obligated to follow and I need you to follow them. And I go, I'm not doing it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and see, so I, I have that So I too. get it. I, I, yeah. I, and this is not turning into a bash the breeder session. Uh, I, I, but, but we have all, just being honest, we have all had that experience in medicine and it does color the way that we look at, mm-hmm. at, at breeders. And the crazy thing is um, it colors the way we look at breeders as a group. I think maybe that's the most destructive part of all of this is we lump them together and say, oh, breeders. Well, the truth is those people are as different as you and I are different. You know, they're, they're just night and day. They're, they're their own people and they're all doing their own thing in different ways. But um, but I, I think I'm just, I guess I'm sort of defending my people here and being like, I understand mm-hmm. I understand sometimes why we have these biases, but I think you're, I think you're points are um are overall excellent are there action steps that came out of this so we've already touched on a number of them but i want to i want to push you a little bit to sort of summarize the plan of attack i guess when you say looking at this looking at the overlaps here looking at the common uh, problems we have i i don't think it takes a lot of imagination to see that working well with breeders can be a great I mean, it can be good for us and it can be good for them. Our our goals are not as so out of alignment that this cannot be a wonderful relationship. Ryan, what do I need to do to try to facilitate that being reality? I think, first of all, being demonstrating regard for ourselves, right? And realizing we're, we're people, we're good people. We have good intent. We mean well. Some days we're stressed. We're gonna we're gonna not make like not all relationships are gonna work, right? And that's true whether it's a breeder or not coming into us. So one just accepting that we can't fix everything. We can't make everyone like us. That's an unrealistic expectation. But what I hope is we can make there fewer um, appointments where we we get into that posturing and power struggle and things that came out of the study. Um, we're not rocket science, um, but they were partnership things. So breeders wanted vets to ask more questions about their experience, their perspective, find out who I am is what the theme was. Right. And, and so by that, it doesn't have to be five hours of conversation, but ask me, why do I breed Sphinx cats? What made me like this breed? Find out why I'm passionate about them and figure that out. And that way, you know, me as a person and you start to separate me from the group of breeders and now it's just i'm ryan and i love sphinx cats and how can we partner together to make a good relationship so i think taking the label off and on the same time veterinarians um feeling comfortable to say you know i've never met this breed before i haven't worked with this breed tell me what your experiences have been would it be okay with so lots of permission statements would it be okay if i looked up some of the research you know, are there articles that you'd like me to look up, right? And we can still form our own opinion. But that little step is one, being honest, we don't know everything, we're not God. Two, it gives us access, it opens the door, it says, hey, I'm rewarding you, you've done research, I'd like to see what you've done. Show it to me. 
And then we can have a conversation. Um, and I would say that those are, are things that I would try. And it's easier said than done. I get that. I think, mm-hmm. I think one thing that would really help, and veterinarians actually asked for this in the study. They said, I want time. I need time. And, and by that, I can extrapolate. Um, there's not enough time in any appointment consult, right? Let alone right. Uh, a wellness visit. Um, the wellness visits that are never wellness, right? But we shouldn't have a 10-minute appointment with the breeder. Like, yes, we may mm-hmm. just be looking for an open fontanelle or palpating patellas or palpating an umbilicus for a hernia, but maybe we need a half an hour. I don't know what the time limit is. No one said that, but the, the veterinarians in the study were very open to saying, you know, if I had more time, I could get to know them. And, and many of the veterinarians were very honest about their biases. And they're like, yeah, I need to take a step back. I just don't have the time to yeah. do that. And if you give me time, so maybe that's a practice management question, right? Because if we're going to want that breeder to have a, a relationship with the practice, then us being antagonistic, it's never going to go anywhere. But if we spend half an hour, an hour, we start that on the better foot, mm-hmm. maybe then it won't be, it's going to take generations, you know, of litters. But I think eventually we can move in the right direction. Sure. But even thinking about generations of litters we're talking about, that's, that's years. You know, that's not decades. That's true. That's years, which, which seems which seem very reasonable. You know, I, I would be fascinated. I don't feel like it's a wildly radical statement to say that even if you just look at this economically, right? Pure business pragmatism. You look and you'd say, well, breeders are not like other pet owners. Like this person has a different objective. They're doing different things. Um, the benefits of a happy breeder in your practice um, are probably different than the benefits of a single pet owning household being happy with your practice economically. And so I, I have... I think that that would be interesting. That would be research I'd be very interested in seeing is what is the financial outcome of having a healthy breeder relationship for your practice? And again, it's going to vary a lot with the individuals, but I guess I'm saying all of that in, in to justify spending more time with this person who is producing puppies, especially if they're local, mm-hmm. if they're local puppies. I mean, I, I'm sure that I'm not the only vet that sees a lot of puppies with their new homes because I saw them with their breeder, you know, three, six, eight weeks ago, you know? And so what what does that look like? I guess what I'm digging at is, is there financial justification for extending time with breeders to give them extra support and to really foster those relationships? Can you justify that in your overall workload as opposed to just like, nope, they get the same time as everybody else to your point about, you know, is there reading I can do? I can just hear veterinarians in my mind being like, I don't have time for that. And that would be my first thought as well. I think that you say, well, if this person is going to be producing litters of puppies and kittens and they're going to be coming here and I'm going to be taking care of these puppies and kittens and I want what's best for them, then I need to know how to interact with this person effectively and taking the time to look through these things um, is good, even if it's just from a relationship building standpoint. So I just I think that those are really interesting questions, and, and I, I would love to to break that down a little bit. Awesome, Dr. Ryan Engler, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for sharing your insight and your research. Um, if people want to learn more about you and the research that you're doing going forward, how could they stay up to date? Great question, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, they can go to the University of Arizona College of Medicine 
kind of webpage, um, they can find me there. Um, they are also welcome to email me. Um, and so my email is, is my first letter of my first name, so R. And then you tack on my last name, E-N-G-L-A-R, at arizona.edu. And I promise I'll always get back to you. It may not be instantaneous, but I would be happy to, to share any answers that I have or, or listen. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You have a great day. Gang, that is it. That is our episode. That is what we got for you today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope this stimulated some thoughts. It has definitely made me think about my own kind of biases and assumptions that I make. And I have made some changes in kind of the way I try to present myself when I talk with breeders. And that's, you know, it's pretty common. So it's yeah, this is going to be one of those things I think that is food for thought. And it actually has some implications that we can take and use right away. And so I always love to do those episodes. Guys, if there are things that you want to hear from the Kona Shane podcast, let me know. Shoot me an email. The email address is podcast at drandyrourke.com. That's podcast at D-R-A-N-D-Y-R-O-A-R-K.com. And I'll take that and run with it. Also, if you're like, I don't have a question, but I just want you to keep making episodes, uh, you can encourage me very easily by uh, sharing the podcast with friends so that people listen and then also writing an honest review wherever you get the podcast so generally that's itunes um for most of us and yeah just uh just an honest review goes a long way it really does motivate and encourage me and it's also how people find the show so that means a ton gang i, I i'm gonna stop talking at you uh, i hope you have a wonderful wonderful day and a wonderful rest of your week talk to you soon